Okay, but we start with last night's federal leaders debate just 10 days until election day now justin trudeau and aaron o'toole running neck and neck here this election is razor close let's break down this debate now and analyze it with the great panel we've got for you bill thielman president of west star communications bill's a longtime political strategist in bc hi bill hey mike thanks for doing this also chris sims canadian taxpayers federation a familiar voice to our listeners hi chris Hey, thanks for having us. Okay, thanks to both of you for being here. Chris, let me go to you first. We've got some highlights of the debate we'll play here in a moment, but just real briefly, your overall reaction and what jumped out at you last night. Well, I found it was kind of hard to have things jump out at you because uh, the format was a little bit jarring. You know, if you don't like this current form of our debate setup, uh, Mike, maybe you should go into the newsroom, grab a few journalists. They can start asking questions too. Um, I found that switching up between who's the moderator and who's the journalist asking questions uh, ate up yeah. a lot of time and space. And so yeah. we weren't able to get a lot of really good content there. Uh, from the taxpayers' perspective, though, mm-hmm. uh, I found it a little disconcerting that we had to wait almost 90 minutes before we started talking about things such as affordability, like right. the cost of groceries, the cost of rent, the cost of gasoline, just those basics. And as far as I could tell, C-10, uh, the Internet gag law, which would affect everybody on all parts of the political spectrum, that didn't even come up. So I, I found it uh, a little lacking in substance. Okay, Bill Thielman, what jumped out at you? Well, it was like WWF, uh, the, the, the wrestling matches. <laughs> like, to me, uh, Anime Paul just body slams Trudeau right from the get-go, <laughs> bringing up Jane Philpott and Jody Wilson-Raybo yes. and Selena Cesar Chavanez and as examples of him not being a feminist. And it just kept on going and going. It was... Uh, a wild Donnybrook from my perspective, and I think Trudeau was the guy in the bottom of the dog pile most of the time. Um, I thought it was, uh, I, I give uh, our friend Chachi Curl full credit. She tried to keep it on track, and I see a lot of unfair attacks on her. She didn't decide the format and write it and do the whole thing. She's just the moderator. But I do agree. I agree with Chris and yourself. It was a tough format to follow. It just kept switching around, and, yeah. and people couldn't really, all the leaders, I think, were a bit frustrated. They couldn't really say their piece. Uh, I thought it was shocking. There was no closing statement. I thought that at least they should yeah. give them a minute or two to close off at the end. But um, but that said, it, it was entertaining. But I'm not sure if it was illuminating. Okay, really was, like, sorry. Go ahead. I, I was just going to say I was just going to agree with you guys. It was kind of a frustrating format, but I agree that it was it was seemed at times like a four on one pylon against Trudeau. Let me play. Let's play a couple of highlights here and get your thoughts and analysis. So here's Justin Trudeau on on one of the frequent points of attack and why he called this election in the first place with the virus surging across the country. And here's Trudeau on that. Tonight, over the next couple of hours, you're going to hear some very, very different, very strong ideas uh, that are radically different about how we're going to move forward through this pandemic to end it, how we're going to build back better. Those decisions are going to be taken by your government now, in the coming weeks, this fall, not a year from now, not two years from now. Could it not and have waited a few months, Mr. Trudeau? I know you want to go harder and faster on vaccinations. I know you want to go harder and faster on climate change. And you get to choose exactly that in this election. Okay, Chris Sims, he's taken a lot of lumps over the timing of this election. Is Trudeau in trouble here? I think he might be in trouble not just because he called an election. Uh, I think he's just in trouble because a lot of Canadians, no matter who's in power, after a while, they start feeling like it's time for a change. 
really. That's how it seems to go most of the time at the federal level. And I don't, I don't think we need to pretend, at least from our perspective, it doesn't matter if you're John Horgan or Justin Trudeau. If you think you have a good shot of winning a majority and you're in a minority, you're going to cause an election to happen. So yeah. I, th- I think that's the bottom line. Bill? I think what we saw, Mike, was that, uh, and Chris, uh, Aaron O'Toole and Jagmeet Singh particularly just uh, went on one theme. Trudeau says one thing and he does another. He yeah. says one thing, he does another. And you heard it repeatedly throughout there. And Anime Paul got into that as well. And I think that's what kind of hurts. It's You expect the prime minister or a premier in a provincial debate to be the target of the other parties. But this was a pretty exceptionally nasty and, and brutal attack on Mr. Trudeau. And, and I think I, I don't think he acquitted himself poorly, but he couldn't really excel or get his message out in the way that I'm sure the liberals wanted. I saw a lot of uh, liberal activists on Twitter last night complaining about the format, complaining about the moderator, complaining about the amount of time Mr. Trudeau had. And, and that's all, you know, uh, kind of sour grapes, I guess, at this point. But um, the, the parties themselves, we've got to remember, the parties themselves sit down and negotiate with the network consortium about the format. So uh, yeah. everybody had some input in this one uh, other than the viewers. And, uh, and okay. pretty clearly it wasn't the best format for Mr. Trudeau. Okay, a lot of eyes on Aaron O'Toole last night. I think for many Canadians who are not really familiar with him, maybe checking this guy out for the first time. Let me play an exchange here between O'Toole and Trudeau. And here they are duking it out on climate change. And then I'll get your thoughts. There is so much we can do to get our emissions down but grow a strong economy because without a strong economy, we can't tackle climate change. We can't tackle okay. the issues of but today. The reality that Mr. O'Toole has never understood is you can't have a strong economy unless you tackle climate change. And you ask about how we're going to convince the quarter of Canadians who still don't think climate change is real. Well, Mr. O'Toole can't even convince his party that climate change is real because they voted against that. And that's perhaps why his plan is so weak. His plan is to go back to the Harper targets. Okay, that was a good example there, Chris, of uh, Trudeau's fast talking last night. And sometimes he was really talking a mile a minute. I'm not sure it worked that well for him. What did you think about the exchanges between O'Toole and Trudeau, the two front runners? One of these guys will end up prime minister. What did you think of those performances? Uh, it would have been better if they'd had more time to go one-on-one. And again, yeah. this is not a knock on Sachi. She's fantastic. And the way she was able to help Merrick, the questioner, for example, stay on track when he was getting nervous, she did an yeah. amazing job. It was the, it was the format itself. Um, so... With, with this issue, this was the one really good exchange I found between the two of them. In other cases, uh, you know, to your point earlier, he wasn't able to point to concrete solutions and accomplishments over the past six years. And so the theme of you're all talk, you know, you're all sizzle, no steak, right, really right. seemed to stick to him during the entire debate. And I think a lot of the party leaders really landed those blows. Okay, I thought Trudeau's main job last night, Bill, was to go in there and try and paint O'Toole as, as this scary extremist and it didn't really work too well for him i thought o'toole is pretty pretty cool under fire and mm-hmm. he basically stood there smiling kind of lowering the temperature never really tried to get never really got too angry in response just trying to look like a you know the guy next door that you you wouldn't mind borrowing his lawnmower or whatever and he, he thought he looked pretty good well, your thoughts yeah, well, look, I thought he had a brilliant move early on in the uh, the first half hour. He said, look, I admit the Conservatives, we haven't met the test in the past on, on uh, climate change, but we have a plan, we've got carbon carbon pricing and uh, and uh, you know you mr trudeau has uh, great ambitions but he never meets his targets and so i thought okay he's right. admitting that the conservatives have a problem which is extremely unusual in a national leaders debate and he's saying look I, I maybe i'm not perfect but that guy just 
makes it up as he goes along and doesn't doesn't do anything. I thought okay. that was a pretty telling piece. And and Jagmeet Singh kind of did the same thing. He said, he, "Look, he he says he's going to do this, but then he increases fossil fuel subsidies." So again, that same kind of theme of you can't trust Mr. Trudeau. Okay, speaking of Singh, the uh, the NDP leader here's Jagmeet Singh last night and talking about recovery from the pandemic. Tool and Mr. Trudeau are jumping over each other about who is going to cut help to people first. I don't agree with that approach. I don't think it makes sense to say, oh, I'm going to have people's back, but I'm going to cut as quickly We're as I can. I'm going to cut the help benefit, to Mr. people Singh. who need it doubling as much it. as they can. We're the only party right here clearly is going to say to you, you're not going to have to pay more. We're not going to cut any programs. Okay, it was a big night for Jagmeet Singh, big opportunity for him. Chris, how do you think he did? Real quick. Uh, he seemed to perform well, but again, uh, he wasn't able to get a lot of his messaging out. Um, we, we get leery about the idea of never-ending spending because our, our debt is more than a trillion dollars right now. Like Our grandkids are going to be literally trying to pay this thing down. So we would have liked to have seen a bit more focus on some form of fiscal responsibility. Bill, real quickly, and then we'll take a break and some calls, too. Sure. Well, I mean, I thought uh, Singh did a good piece there. And, and again, what he was trying to do is paint them as uh, both in the same camp. And when he said uh, they're arguing over who, who's the worst on climate change, and honestly, it's a tough choice. I thought that was his line of the night for sure. That's okay. what he has to do. He has to make sure that people see the NDP as an alternative to the Liberals, an alternative to the Conservatives, and see those two parties as similar. I have said before, and I'll say again tonight, that I do not believe that Mr. Trudeau is a real feminist. A feminist doesn't continue to push strong women out of his, um, out of his party uh, when uh, they are just seeking to serve. And I will say their names tonight and thank them. Thank you, Jane Philpott. Thank you, Jody Wilson-Raybould. Thank you, Selena cesar Chavez. And I'm here tonight thanks to the work that you have done. Okay, Annamie Paul there, the, the federal green leader, really sticking it to Trudeau, saying he's not a real feminist. Trudeau came back and said, well, I'm not going to take any lessons from you on, on caucus unity because she's had a rebellion in her own ranks, but I, I thought that was a good moment for her. Uh, breaking down last night's federal leaders debate with Chris Sims, Bill Thielman. Let's go to your phone calls here. Greg in Richmond. Hi, Greg. Hi. Hi, go ahead. Hi, I am most convinced that Mr. O'Toole is best equipped to lead us out of this massive financial disaster that Mr. Trudeau has put us in over the past six years. How's he going to do that? Uh, I think he will do it by convincing the business world that um, they'll put right, invest in Canada? incentives in place to, to yeah. grow the economy of Canada. Okay, thanks for, Canada. Thanks, thanks for the call. Bill, what do you think of that? Well, I think O'Toole did a, a very good job. He did exactly what he wanted, and I, my highlight for O'Toole was not what something he said, but after uh, after I think it was Blanchet attacked him, uh, the Bloc Quebecois leader. There was a camera shot from the angle, and O'Toole was grinning from ear to ear. <laughs> he was just loving that Trudeau was getting roasted yet again. Uh, but I, look, I thought he impressed people. He and, and Anime Paul are, are strangers to most of the Canadian public, yeah. uh, other than maybe their TV ads and rare appearances. So they both were kind of introducing themselves. I thought it was pretty funny because Anime Paul is probably the friendliest place she's been in the entire election, <laughs> yeah, right. the infighting in the Green Party, uh, yeah. even though it was pretty hostile. Uh, but O'Toole did a, you know, he did a very credible job, I think. I think he and, and Singh and Paul were kind of the winners there. Chris Sims? 
Uh, just full disclosure, I worked very closely with Aaron O'Toole uh, for quite a while. Um, but that being said, uh, the happy warrior thing is that's the way he is. So that big smile while he was getting attacked, like that's just his natural speed at things. And I think it portrayed him very well on camera. When it comes down yeah. to fiscal responsibility, we are glad to hear, you know, 85% reduction within six years of the deficit. That That's good news. At least we've got some hard numbers on it. Yeah, he was um, avoiding getting angry. He didn't yep. want to show an angry side. He just wanted to look calm and lower the temperature and moderate and smiling. James in Kelowna. Hi, James. Or, sorry, hey, Paul. It, yeah. I found the format of the debate very difficult to watch because of the interjection by Chuck each girl. And then the other um, point is that Blanchette, it, I find it so frustrating that, that, that he's involved in, in a debate like this. He mm. even said he doesn't want to leave the country so it, it's so hard to see the, him up there um, doing doing uh, doing his bit. Okay, Chris, what do you think of that? There's an argument to be made that it should just be the four national parties, the ones that are actually running, you know, seats, or maybe even including Maxime Bernier, if you want to consider that. But the idea that you're including somebody who is not running anybody outside of one province is a little odd. And again, on the format, I think the issue was, is it with the changing journalism and the changing journalists, it became Oscar night for the Ottawa bubble, and we didn't get a lot of clear answers. <laughs> okay, I thought there was a moment there when the Bloc Québécois leader was kind of clashing with Shachi Curl, the, uh, the moderator, over oh, yeah. over whether Quebec sec secularism laws are discriminatory, and I wonder if Trudeau might be a little worried about that. Like, if that gives that bloc leader a little bit of leverage in Quebec, I mean, that potentially splits votes off from Trudeau and the Liberals in Quebec. Bill, well, yeah, and I, you know, Jagmeet Singh avoided that one, but he could have said, "Look, I couldn't get a job in the public service in Quebec thanks to that law." Yeah, uh, he obviously right. doesn't want to uh, anger the the uh, French uh, Canadians in Quebec who are uh, very pro for that kind of restriction. But it, 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 but Sachi Curl is absolutely right. It, it, it is uh, borderline, if not outright, outright racist, and, and good for her for calling uh, him out on it. But okay. I, you know, I think there's an argument that I certainly Blanchette, uh, a Quebec-only candidate, but a, a party with two seats on a national yeah. stage like that, I mean, that's just a gift to the Green Party, and I'm not sure that parties without official status should be on these debates. Chris in Surrey. Hi, Chris. Hey, how's it going? Good. Go ahead. Um, the previous caller mentioned with regards to financial issue, Trudeau put us in. Um, you know, my my thing is that how many PMs have been put in a pandemic recovery situation? Not a lot. Uh, it was frustrating for Canadians, for me especially. Uh, Singh had a perfect opportunity, but could not give details. Even the moderator tried to press him for details, but he could not give anything. Um, Otto, yeah. <laughs> um, on his end, you know, if he can't convince his own party members, uh, then I can't trust that he can pass anything on climate change or even the pandemic. I mean, he lost me okay. on, you know, recommending vaccine as opposed to mandating anything, yeah. or supporting a mandate. Okay, Chris, thanks for the call. Okay, we just got a minute left here, guys, to wrap up. Chris, I'll let you go first. Go with 30 seconds here. Well, um, it was good to see some actual questions coming from real people. Uh, they do need to fix that in, in the future. And I would like to see more debates, not just this one in English. Uh, I think yeah. this is a very important election for obvious reasons that your callers raised. We need to hear more from these folks, not less. I agree. I agree. Bill? 
Yeah, totally. We we should have uh, two or three debates. And, you know, there were a whole bunch of issues, mental health, the opioid uh, yep. crisis, addiction and overdose crisis, all sorts of things didn't even get touched upon, which are important in this election. And I think uh, that it really it behooves the parties and the networks to, okay. to do a better job. If Quebec can get two, why can't well, English Canada only get one? All right. Welcome back to the show. Let's talk about BC's vaccine passport now. The BC vaccine card kicks in this Monday. Proof of vaccination to be required to go to a restaurant, a pub, a movie theater, other non-essential venues. There is no medical opt-out of the vaccine card. This is despite that Dr. Bonnie Henry asked about this frequently. What if you have a rare medical condition that would prevent you from taking the vaccine? Do you get an exemption from the vaccine card? The answer is no. There are no exemptions. Now, this has We've covered this on the show. This has been a subject of complaints by human rights activists, including Laura Track. She's a human rights lawyer with the BC Human Rights Clinic. She was a guest on the show recently on this topic. Here's what she had to say about it. We know that there are people who legitimately cannot receive the vaccine due to medical conditions and disabilities, things like allergies or being uh, immunocompromised in some way. These are not folks opposed to the vaccine for personal or political reasons. These are people who legitimately cannot safely receive the vaccine. And under human rights law, policymakers and service providers are required to take steps to what's called accommodate people who have disabilities. Okay, that last point is why I think this will very likely end up in front of a judge in British Columbia, the lack of a medical exemption. You take a look at what other provinces have done. They have brought in medical exemptions elsewhere, notably in Ontario. Now, it's a very narrow criteria, though, in Ontario. There are only two circumstances Ontario has outlined where you can actually get a medical exemption from their vaccine passport. One would be an allergic reaction to a compound in the vaccine, which must be confirmed by an by an allergist or an immunologist, according to the officials in Ontario. Uh, the other are people who suffer from myocarditis or pericarditis, which is a type of heart inflammation, and if they had a reaction after the first dose of the vaccine. That's about it. That's about it in, in Ontario, as it's been outlined there. Are there other circumstances, like what are the medical conditions that would prevent you from taking the vaccine? We're interested in digging deeper into that. So let's check, uh, discuss that now with my guest, Jason Tetro, host of the Super Awesome Science Show. He's a microbiologist and an immunologist. I'm pleased to welcome him back. Jason, thanks a lot for coming on. Hey, no problem. I'm happy to be here. Okay, there's a ton of interest in this topic, this medical exemption, which does not exist mm-hmm. in British Columbia. Bonnie Henry seems like very firm that she doesn't want to go there with this medical exemption. What do you think of that? Like, are there legit cases where people can't simply can't take the vaccine for a legit medical reason? Oh, yeah. And over the last number of months, many of the callers to CKNW have actually said that, you know, I can't really get the vaccine because I'm on uh, immune uh, suppressors or I'm currently going through, you know, cancer treatment or something along those lines. And really, out of all those calls, the only one that has really changed has been pregnancy, where women who are pregnant are now being asked to get the vaccine because it's been shown to be safe. So there is a number of of uh, individuals out there who simply cannot get the vaccine. And it's not just because of allergies or pericarditis. 
Um, by the way, you pronounce those perfectly. Oh, did uh, I? Oh, so, man. Okay, yeah, uh, myocarditis, pericarditis, perfect. Um, so the fact is that, yes, there are a number of people. Here's the problem. Uh, you, the person that you talked to, the lawyer, was talking about Section 7 of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, and that's great. However, there's also something called the Quarantine Act, and that has been shown numerous times to trumpet. And so as a result, what's going to end up happening is for this very short period of time, probably, you know, no more than about three months, we're going to be in a situation where even if you can't get the vaccine, you're going to have to take a bit of a hit to your quality of life in order to make sure that we don't have this virus continually moving around in a community of susceptibles. We would love for that not to happen, obviously, but in order to get to the 85% fully vaccinated, it's going to take a little bit more time, plus we got to change a few more minds. So that's really the situation we're at at the moment. Okay. okay. Are there people out there who may think or believe that they have a medical condition that prevents them from taking the vaccine when they really don't. Perhaps they're misinformed. <laughs> Maybe they got some bad information, maybe even from their own doctor. Let's go over a couple of like categories here, Jason, for your thoughts. Like sure. you mentioned, okay, let's say a, a woman who is pregnant, like, mm -hmm. because if you're pregnant, you can take the vaccine, correct? Yeah. And I, I admit, even three to four months ago, even I was saying, I don't know. Um, but the Society for Obstetricians and Gynecologists of Canada have come forward and said that the data now shows that you can. Okay. What about a, a breastfeeding mom? Um, actually, that's probably one case where you want to be vaccinated because then yeah. you'll be transferring all those lovely antibodies to your baby. Right. This is another one that comes up. Well, maybe I shouldn't take the, the vaccine in these conditions, but maybe people are misinformed. What about if you if you have like a rare allergy? I, I once had a friend um, mm -hmm. who actually died after he was stung by a bee. He had like a I believe that's mm -hmm. an, is that anaphylaxis? Is that what that is? Yeah, so yeah. anaphylaxis is really the one that is deadly because what happens is everything seizes up um, and, and the immune system takes over and unfortunately you don't. Uh, anaphylactoid, which is what we're seeing with respect to the vaccine, is not as severe, but it definitely is a troublesome thing and you need to get some kind of medical attention. And, uh, you know, I was reading a story of someone in British Columbia who literally is going to admit themselves or at least be in an emergency room in a hospital just in case. I'm not suggesting everybody with, a, with an allergy should do that. But again, this is sort of where we are in terms of trying to figure out how we can manage this vaccination right. need. Right. So there are people who have a legit allergy and can't take the yes. vaccine, right? Like how yes. many? Like the, one of the things I'm wondering is how, how common is this? How widespread oh. is it? Because I've heard people say this is we're talking tiny numbers of people. Or yeah, I mean, um, this is a, a an allergy to a particular uh, compound known as PEG, polyethylene glycol. And as a result of that, I think the number is originally something like 1 in 30,000 or something. Uh, I don't remember the numbers offhand, but it is very, very, very small. And the fact is that if you do suffer from any kind of allergies, you've probably already got an allergist who is taking care of you. And you can find out whether or not PEG is one of the things that you're allergic to. Okay, I was watching a report on CNN last night about some of the parts of the United States where there's very low vaccination rates. And I was watching an interview with one, one person who said, I can't take the vaccine because my, I have cancer. And my doctor mm -hmm. told me because I'm on chemo, I should yeah. therefore not take the vaccine. Is that true? Yes. 
Uh, if you happen to be on chemotherapy, uh, especially some of the ones that are more aggressive, uh, it will completely wipe out uh, the majority of your immune system. So not only can you not get vaccinated, you can't really be around people during cold and flu season. So it's not that it's just simply vaccination in that case. These are individuals who literally have such a suppressed immune system that they have to be careful everywhere they go. Ironically, those are the people who used to wear masks before we got everyone else to wear masks. Okay, what if you have tripanophobia, which is, as I understand it, is yes. fear fear of taking a needle, right? Which, okay, as, yeah. which I understand is is a legit mental disorder under the diagnostic and statistical manual mm -hmm. of mental disorders, right? So that's a real thing. It's a legit thing. What if yeah. you actually have it? Uh, I have literally talked to people who have it, and I can share with you how one person did this. They went to the drive-thru, they had the rock music a-blasting, and they had someone <laughs> talking with them. So they didn't actually see the needle when it actually went into their arm. They barely felt it. And by the time it was all over, yes, they still felt like they had a traumatic experience. I suggested they play Bach instead of heavy metal, but you know. Um, <laughs> but they actually managed to do it. And I applauded that person and said, I am so thankful that you shared that story with me because I know that there are a lot of people who fear needles out there. And I think this is one example of how you can get past that. All right, welcome back to the show. Talking about BC's vaccine passport with my guest, Jason Tetro. No medical exemption for the passport that kicks in on Monday in BC. Lots of calls. Let's get right to the Mary in Vancouver. Hi. Hi, how are you? I'm good, Mary. Go ahead. Okay, just a quick question. I had uh, a melanoma received from my back. I had a big surgery. And then they put me on immunotherapy, which is kind of a new thing. I'd never heard of it. Well, after nine months of treatment, they discovered that it totally destroyed my adrenal glands. They're, they're, they're dead. They don't work anymore and damaged my pituitary glands. So now I'm on uh, prednisone for the rest of my life, mm -hmm. every day, twice. Wow. And I am scared. I would never let anything else be shot into my body. <laughs> I just would like to know what, what he thinks wow. of, you know. Like okay, I Mary, I'm sorry. I'm one of the few that shouldn't get it. Thank you, Mary. Yeah. I mean, the, the, this is one of those very, very rare situations, and it's very difficult. Now, there is a recommendation from uh, researchers and, and, and other groups that if you are taking corticosteroids that are under 10 milligrams per day, then the vaccine should still be okay. But I completely understand not wanting to get the vaccine after everything she's gone through. Um, this is something that you really need to be talking with your doctor about and deciding whether or not this is for you. Remember, this is a short-term issue with respect to the vaccine uh, for the vaccine card and the no exemptions. So, I mean, if you can hold off for a little bit more, then you'll probably get back to a more normal life. Okay, that's a tough spot, right? I mean, you might have one doctor. Yeah. I mean, could doctors have divided opinions on, on her case? In this particular case, no. And the reason is because... All, after everything that's happened, she's now on prednisone. So we know what is going on. And as a result of that, the, the, the literature and, and the recommendations are clear. So then what would that be? To, to take the vaccine or not? To get the vaccine if you have uh, corticosteroids that are under 10 milligrams per day. Okay, okay. Mary, good luck with that. Let's go to James in Kelowna. Hi, James. Yeah, my question is, and I would appreciate uh, in the answer if there could be some study cited or some conclusive evidence. The question is, how does having had COVID, therefore obviously having antibodies, not qualify mm -hmm. a person 
for um, the same um, perspective or the same outcome as one having mm-hmm. vac- a vaccine. Okay, thanks. Yeah, absolutely. It all comes down to the antibodies. And there are studies that have been done that actually show the difference in antibody formation. And the one thing that you need to hear is this. If you are infected with COVID original lineage, you do not have enough of an immune response to be able to block alpha, beta, delta, and so on. If, however, you have had the mRNA pre-fusion spike protein vaccine, Pfizer, Moderna, AstraZeneca, then you have an antibody profile that is going to be able to resist alpha, beta, gamma, and mu, but not necessarily delta, unless you've had two doses and 15 days. Because when it comes to delta, it's not about the types of antibodies, it's the number of antibodies that you make. And you need to make that 150 times more than anybody who's ever had a COVID uh, infection in order to be able to counteract delta. So, so therefore, you would advise people, even if they've had COVID, to still get the vaccine, and they, and that, right? Yes, and in yeah. fact, what we've seen is that uh, people who have been suffering from what they're calling long COVID, which is essentially yeah. sequelae as a result of a, a COVID infection, seem to be reversing or at least minimizing those symptoms after they get the uh, prefusion spike protein mRNA vaccine. Joanne and Delta, hi. Hi, I'm just letting you know that I I went through ovarian cancer and I had got two surgeries. The first one, they couldn't do complete hysterectomy because I had ovarian cancer. And during this process, I was on chemo. I also went and got my shot. Now, I was just wondering why you said that people taking chemo cannot get the shot when, in fact, I got both of my shots. Jason. Well, that, that's actually great. And the thing is, is that we, when you were talking about chemotherapy, sometimes the different types of chemos are going to be uh, allowing or permissive of getting a vaccine. Um, that's, again, a discussion that you have with your doctor. I'm talking about the aggressive ones that actually shut down your T and B cell responses. And I mean, these are names like uh, rituximab, mycopho- mycophenolate, and things like that. So, Really, what I'm trying to provide here is more of a general understanding. But remember, this is something that you always should be having a discussion with your doctor or your oncologist or your gynecologist. Um, We're just here talking about this on the radio. But for a decision, make sure that you're talking with your personal health care provider. Okay, Sharon in Coquitlam. Hi, Sharon. Hi, Mike. I really enjoy your program. Thank you. Um, I'm wondering if in Canada there is anything similar to the VAERS reporting system in the United States. Mm. On the VAERS reporting system, they're showing over 12,000 deaths so Mm -hmm. far, and also miscarriages, uh, deaths of babies being breastfed. I'm wondering, do we have a system here that reports adverse effects? Uh, One is in development as we speak, and we are going to have that. One thing that you should know, any adverse event such as death or miscarriage or something has to be reported to VAERS within the first 28 days after a vaccination shot. That's how it works. So the numbers are going to be astronomically high. Then what ends up happening is that each one of those cases is analyzed to determine whether or not there is causality. And as far as I can tell, if I remember correctly, it was three cases out of uh, 6,000 that may have had any kind of link in terms of deaths to uh, the COVID vaccine. So you have to realize the number that you're looking at is not proven. The number you are looking at is just simply all cause. You have to then boil that down. And what you're going to find 
as we've seen with other vaccines, is that the amount of adverse events such as death, um, severe uh, disability, miscarriage, is going to be less than 0.001% of the actual number of people who are vaccinated. Okay, very important to know and great context on that. Jason, thank you for your time. Again, we got more calls, but we simply don't have the time, so we'll just have to have you back again. Thank you for coming on today. Appreciate it. A quick programming note for you. We'll have Baldry's Beat an hour later today at 11 o'clock. I'll talk to Keith Baldry from Global News. Right now, let's talk about the ongoing anti-old growth logging blockades at Ferry Creek on Vancouver Island. These protests really started ramping up last spring as more and more people started putting themselves on the line there. And we've seen a record number of arrests at the site now. It is now the largest campaign of civil disobedience in Canadian history. Sapora Berman on the line. She's an environmental activist and writer, and I'm pleased to welcome her back. Sapora, thank you for coming on. Thank you for having me. Sapora, I, I first met you in uh, Clackwood Sound back in the 90s during the protest there in ni- the summer of 1993, and I believe the number of arrests there at, in Clackwood was, uh, has now been surpassed. What are your thoughts on that? Well, you know, I think it's really shocking that 30 years later, people are still being arrested. I mean, this incredibly diverse group of citizens, thousands of people have come to Ferry Creek, over 900 people arrested. When I was there, I met scientists and doctors and construction workers and teachers, all these people from across the province who are coming to stand up for old growth. And it's just shocking to me that 30 years later, uh, citizens are still needing to take these stands to protect what little growth we have left. Okay, why? How many arrests have there been now? What's the latest? The latest count? The, the last number I saw was eight hundred and eighty-two arrests so far. Huge. Yeah, there were over a dozen yesterday, so I think we're over nine hundred now. Wow. In Clackwood Sound, it was about eight hundred and fifty-six by some counts, eight hundred and fifty-nine. So, so Ferry Creek has definitely surpassed uh, the number of arrests in Clackwood Sound. Okay, why are these arrests and protests continuing? after the B.C. government agreed to a deferral of old-growth logging in the area for two years? Well, I mean, that's that's the big question. Uh, you know, the B.C. government has said it's protecting old-growth. It has said, you know, trees greater than 250 years won't be logged, that it's protecting old-growth in Ferry Creek, and yet the uh, trees are falling, um, not just in Ferry Creek, but across the province. We now have, of course, very good maps from scientists showing what is the high uh, productivity at-risk old growth across the province, and and it's being logged. You know, there there are a couple of trees uh, that I've seen for myself um, that are just behind one of the blockade camps, River Camp in Ferry Creek. These trees are over a thousand years old, um, and some of the largest trees I've ever seen in my life. And and they're and they're in the cut blocks. They're slated so- to be logged. So. So the government needs to do more deferrals, that much is clear, and in fact they need to ensure permanent protection of what's left of our old growth forests in British Columbia. Okay, so when the government says they've agreed to a two-year deferral on this old growth logging, are you saying that they're like they're lying about that, like there's, there's actually logging still going on in that area, or are you talking about logging that's continuing like nearby, outside of the area where they've deferred? Well, I mean, I guess it's how you define Ferry Creek. There is one um, watershed, one river bottom that the deferrals now apply to. Um, But there's a number of areas that are still in the region that are old growth, some massive uh, groves of cedar trees that are over a thousand years old that are still slated to be logged. So, 
So they, 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 they deferred basically up to the uh, ridge of one okay. valley bottom, but there are other areas that are still slated to be logged. Okay, the Pachidot First Nation, of course, their elected leadership has issued uh, several statements asking the protesters to leave. Why do the protesters not defer to the leadership of this First Nation and leave their traditional territory when they were asked to do so? Well, there's clearly disagreement within the Pachadet community. There are uh, Pachadet elders and youth and many more who are on the front lines and, and leading these blockades in Ferry Creek. Um, statements put out um, by hereditary chiefs, elders, um, calling for more people to come and join the blockades in, in Ferry Creek. I understand that the Pachadet Band Council has reached an agreement to uh, defer uh, some of the old growth. Um, I question whether or not the BC government actually offered support uh, to them to protect the rest uh, of the old mm. growth that's still slated to be logged. I mean, I, I think a lot of these nations are being put in unprecedented and very difficult situations where they're being um, offered financial support to allow okay. these industrial activities to continue in, in areas that are critical for protection. Sapora, last question for you uh, about the police action. We've seen a record number of arrests. We've seen some complaints against the police and their, their tactics, enforcement tactics there. Yesterday, the National Police Federation, which is effectively the union at the RCMP, and I'm going to speak to one of their spokespeople next here, uh, released a survey showing that they have widespread public support for the enforcement at the site. What are your thoughts about that? It's not just a couple complaints against the RCMP. There have been over a hundred formal complaints filed about the RCMP's increasingly brutal and excessive use of force. Uh, we've seen the RCMP bulldozing people's cars that are just on the, on the side of the road, smashing them up in one circumstance when a woman was inside her car. We've seen video of the police dragging a young indigenous woman by the hair instead of Instead of carrying her when she was arrested, we've seen police pepper spraying people at close range. I mean, this is, there is a, an unprecedented use of violence. And, and in a year where police racism and violence have been under unprecedented scrutiny, this kind of, I, I think, PR stunt by the National Police Federation is tone deaf. It's defensive. It's unhelpful at best. And at, and at worst, they're actually condoning unnecessary violence and aggression and ignoring these hundred unresolved formal complaints uh, okay. against the use of force. Okay. Sapora, thank you for coming on. Thank you for having me. Sapora Berman there. She supports the blockaders there in Ferry Creek. Let's get the other side of it here now. And in, in terms of the police enforcement at the site, my guest is Rob Ferrer, director of the National Police Federation's Pacific Division. Rob, thanks for coming on again. Thank you. Okay, you just heard from, yeah, you're very familiar with these complaints against the police at the enforcement at Ferry Creek, and you just heard a, a dramatic description there from one of the supporters of the blockaders saying the police have been brutal and, and excessive. Uh, I'm sure you disagree. How do you respond? Yeah, well, the uh, the CRCC, which is in charge of investigating uh, these type of complaints against police officers, any complaint that comes forward, the CRCC will fully investigate. Uh, so I, I, I want to say that, you know, we also have all the officers there are wearing body cams. The, the actions mm. of all the officers are also being filmed from a separate location by our forensic ident unit. So we're, the officers that are there enforcing, and I, I want to point out and, and emphasize, enforcing a court injunction. So they're right. not there voluntarily 
uh, choosing to enforce a court injunction. They have a legal obligation to enforce a court injunction, which is where these arrests come from. And, and all of their actions are being videotaped. Nothing is being hidden from the public whatsoever. So I think, you know, we have to be a little cautious in the brutal actions of the officers. It's all on tape as to what's going on. And we're not shy hiding away from that. But these, the actions of the protests are becoming um, increasingly uh, challenging to deal with. I'll give you an, an example. Sure. Like, you know, they build these, these tripods. Um, so they, they're up, you know, 20 feet in the air. So our officers are, are having to take them out of there. But not only are they building the tripods, the protesters are tying nooses around their own necks and tying them. Oh my God. So when the officers are trying to take them down, if they make any mistakes, this person is going to be hanging by their own oh. actions. Oh, man. So I'm not sure to say that, you know, the increased actions of the police, you know, the, the protesters are doing this over and over. We have officers... Uh, receive a concussion being pushed down by the protesters. This is this is a very challenging challenging situation, and our officers are acting incredibly professionally. Right, and as you mentioned, um, this is an enforcement of a judge's order. I mean, this is a court court injunction. So, I mean, it's not like the police have any any discretion or choices to make. I mean, they are they the police are legally required to go in there and enforce that injunction. Well, the question is, do we, do we live in a, in a country that has a rule of law or not? Um, so our officers are there enforcing a police, in, a, a court injunction. Um, and, and these protesters, this is not a mom and pop operation. You know, they have helicopters flying in supplies. There were three of them that flew in the other day, dropping off caches of rebar, cement. This is, this is a giant, well-organized operation. Even the lawyer representing, I believe it's called the Rainforest Flying Squad, he said yeah. yesterday that I believe part of his quote was the police are there to enforce the law. He's 100% correct. I agree with him. We are there to enforce the law. Our officers are doing a very good professional job. And, and enforcing a court injunction, I believe it's going back to court again as the, the logging company, supported by the, the First Nation that is there, they're going back to court to extend the injunction for another year. All right, welcome back to the show. Talking about the Ferry Creek anti-old growth logging blockades, uh, which continue. Uh, another dozen arrests yesterday. There have been over 900 arrests at the site now, making it the largest act of civil disobedience in Canadian history. You heard my uh, conversation there with Sapora Berman, who's one of the leaders of the protesters. My guest is Rob Ferrer. Rob is the director of the Pacific Division at the National Police Federation, which is the union at the RCMP. Hey, Rob, just before the break, you were mentioning that there were actually helicopters going into this site and dropping supplies to the protesters behind the lines. Like, how is that even possible or tolerated? Like, I, I read one description that some of these helicopters actually had their their identifying numbers on the side of the chopper blocked out so that you couldn't you couldn't get an identity from. Is that is that true? Yeah, I, I, I don't know about that specifically, but I do know, you know, multiple helicopters are dropping off supplies, uh, again, with rebar, concrete, all sorts of supplies. Our, our officers, again, and, and the, I think this point should be made, the, the environmentalists that are there have left behind hundreds of thousands of pounds of garbage that our officers have pulled out. So, you know, 
in one day, we pulled out 22,000 pounds of garbage that was left behind. So, like, this, wow. is, this is an enormous mess that is being created by the environmentalists there. And I, I you know, and I loosely lose that, use that term. You know, they're cutting down trees to help create blockades. It, it, it seems, you know, the whole thing seems, seems rather strange. But again, our officers are there, uh, taken away from their communities where they're, you know, they sign on to provide public safety. And as you yeah. said, there's been 900 arrests there. These are officers who normally have other duties in their communities, whether this is in Surrey or Kelowna or Prince George. But as a result of these actions, and, and, and we're not saying, again, we asked British Columbians what they thought, and, and there's a, you know, a, a decent percentage, a large percentage, that support protests and the ability to protest. And we, and we don't disagree with that, and that's not yeah. the point here. But I think the point has been made. Um, and, and to what end at this stage when the court injunction is very clear that this is not a legal activity? What, what is it like on the line here when there's resistance and the police are required to enforce this court injunction? Because I remember spending a summer out in a logging road in Clockwood Sound in 1993, and I watched hundreds of people taken away by the police. And and quite often it was it was usually with a couple of some exceptions, but it was usually like passive resistance. Like people would just go lie down in the road, go limp, and police officer would carry them away, and people would cheer. That was it. Like there was no real, real like resistance or fighting against the police. You know, it's like classic tactic is passive resistance. Is that what's going on out at Ferry Creek, or are people actually like resisting the police and kind of fighting back against the police? Like, what's going on there? There's a, a bit of both, I would say, yeah. um, but it certainly has increased, and we've seen we've seen tactics. Um, you know, and I'm not a I'm not an expert in what the tactics are, but you know, people handcuffing their arms together and then encasing them in PVC pipes and then digging trenches which, you know, again, is dangerous. These trenches are getting deeper and deeper. The officers have to go down into these trenches that, you know, have, have the risk of collapsing. You know, if you think about in terms of when they're doing road work and they put the, the, the metal containers in to make sure that the, collapse, the trenches don't collapse, well, those aren't existing, but they're digging these deep trenches that if they collapse, people are going to suffocate and die. Like, these are, these are dangerous situations that are going on over and over. And then, you know, in terms of our officers, and they're, they're, they're out there, as I said, you know, doing their best job, being as professional as possible. And now some of them are being stalked online, harassed online. There are wanted posters being put up with the officers' photos all around Victoria. You know, so now we have an online and, and visible intimidation of our officers by these protesters. You know, that cannot wow. continue. What should be done about that? Well, there are things being done about that, and, and we're looking at, at civil remedies as well as, you know, there's investigations into those type of tactics in terms of criminal. So, you know, I don't want to get too deep into that, but, but I do want to point out that, are, you know, all of the actions of the officers are on tape, they're videoed, and any investigation that is required will be done. As with yeah. any other situation, the accountability of the officers is absolutely there. Nobody is trying to hide from that. They're okay, just Rob, trying to make sure that they do it as possible. Rob, we just have one minute left. I mean, people have, may have seen dramatic video from the scene of police pepper spraying protesters and that kind of thing. And you mentioned there are investigations going on with complaints. Just in the 30 seconds we've got left here, can you quickly tell me what the public thinks? You did a quick poll. You did a poll and a survey on public attitudes towards the police, right? What did you find out in 30 seconds? Yeah, we found that 82% of British Columbians, which is, which is a, a very high percentage in any poll, 82% 
believe that the police enforcing of this uh, injunction is correct. So that's 82%, right. you know, four in five Canadian, uh, British Columbians. Rob, thank you for coming on today. Thanks very much.